when, when I was a kid, I was certain that when I grew up, I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. That was pretty much what it was going to be. And there were a lot of adults in my life that spoke into my life and said, hey, you would be a great doctor, or hey, you would be a great lawyer. I think if I was doing more arguing, they would lean towards lawyer. And if, they were, you know, if it was the science stuff, they'd lean toward doctor. In fact, my grandmother was convinced that I would be a doctor. And then she said, and when you become a doctor, I'll get free plastic surgery. So I don't know how genuine that observation and like speaking into my life, I don't know how genuine that was. And I'm not sure if she quite grasped that not every doctor can do plastic surgery, but that was, that was her thing. So, uh, you know, and even today, I still love science. I still love logic and reason. And I still, uh, I have a penchant for debate still. Um, I like problem solving. Um, I even still read about medical stuff. Sometimes I'll read, I'll see articles and they link to the medical journals and I'll, I'll hit the link and I'll read about that stuff because I find it fascinating. And yes, I'm getting, oh, let's do that. Sorry, um, I need to switch our screen here. There we go. So uh, you guys didn't want to see me twice? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks, Becca. Oh, the love today. Uh, you, you know, and so I, I still love those things. I still I actually, le- I, read, I read law articles too, um, you know, in all my spare time. And, you know, especially like the, I, I'm really fascinated by uh, constitutional law. So I love to read whenever the articles come out about Supreme Court decisions. And then they, they li- again, they link to the actual, um, uh, I forget what they call them, when the Supreme Court justices write their positions and I love to read those things. But, you know, medicine can be a grueling profession. The legal profession can be grueling. A lot of long hours. You have a lot of responsibility. So thank God I became a pastor instead. Uh, but, you know, for me growing up, I was like, oh, I knew that's what I wanted to be. And it, it turned out not to be the case. Um, you know, becoming a pastor for me started when I was a teenager. When I was just 13, I got really serious about my faith. I went to this uh, middle school retreat at our church, and, I, and I, I heard the gospel in a new way. I had already put my faith in the gospel, I believe, but it, there's this new sense in which I understood, oh, that's what the gospel's all about. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross, and therefore I go to heaven. It's like, wait a second. I think I was old enough finally to realize I'm an actual sinner, not just conceptually, but in practice. And that I needed the sacrifice of Christ for my sins. And that because of that sacrifice, not only could I go to heaven, but I could actually live a different kind of life. And that became very real to me at 13. And so I started getting involved in church, being there a lot more, serving. Um, I remember teaching in a, a two-year-old Sunday school class with a, with a family friends of ours, the, this couple who were great. And they let me come into this two-year-old class and actually, like, you know, lead a lesson for the little kids, and I kept doing that over the years with different ages, and then when I got into high school, the youth leader was starting this thing called ministry team, and they selected 12 high school students, you know, like the 12 disciples. I don't know if he had his own Jesus complex, but there were 12 of us, and, and we were the ones who planned events, and we did outreaches, and we did our Wednesday night program, and and it was, it was pretty awesome, and, and they chose me to be, I wanted to be a part of it, they, they let me on, and I started to see what it was like to do a lot of these 
types of ministry. I learned how to share my faith and share the gospel. Uh, we were talking in our small group about evangelism explosion this last week. I did that when I was in high school and learned the, you know, that, that method and many other ways of sharing the gospel. And it was just an exhilarating time. I got to lead small groups as a high school student of other high school students. Um, you know, just did all these different things. And so I remember one day going into my, my dad's bedroom and just kind of asking him, hey, how did you know that you were going to be a pastor? How did you decide or how did you understand that God wanted you to be a pastor? Because my dad growing up was a pastor and he, he shared with me and he started asking me some good questions, you know, kind of asking about my understanding of that, my experience of doing ministry. And at the end of the conversation, I just said, you know, I just have a hard time imagining doing anything else with my life other than serving the Lord and serving the church because it feels so important to me. And he said, well, son, I think maybe you're called to be a pastor. And from that day forward, I started charting a course. I started thinking differently about school. I started thinking differently about college. I started thinking differently about my church, my youth group. Um, at this time, I was also like, learning to lead worship. And I was really bad at it because I had just started playing guitar, but they didn't care. They just let me go for it, and, and I learned. And, and, it, and it's, that's become a big part of, for me, what it means to be a pastor. Um, and I had this vision that I'm going to grow up, go to seminary, and then I'm going to come home to my church, and I'm going to be the youth pastor at our church. I knew that's what I was going to do. I was totally wrong. Uh, God had two things in store for me that I didn't expect. One was a five-foot-zero Puerto Rican woman who we're celebrating on Mother's Day today, the mother of our three children. You know, Sonia and I met, and I remember bringing her. Uh, she was living here in New England and in, in the Boston area. Uh, I was just up here for school. We met. We fell in love. I remember her I'm bringing her to meet my parents, and we were up in my parents' bedroom, and we, I was kind of like, hey, we're really serious. And I just remember starting to cry. I was just bawling because I knew I was saying goodbye to my home. I wasn't moving back. And I knew that's what our relationship meant. And then the other thing was, God, I, I did not expect this at all. God kept steering me towards a very different type of ministry, towards this kind of preaching and leading and, you know, not what I expected at all. And I think Sonia sometimes laughs. She's like, you as a youth leader, I don't know. <laughs> like, this is what you're made for. So, you know, throughout our lives, we kind of have different understandings and experience of what our calling is. And even when we get some of the basics right, sometimes the specifics don't work out the way we thought. So what about you? What did you want to be when you were growing up? Or if you're a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, maybe it's a doctor or a lawyer a lot of boys want to be firefighters and policemen. Um, did, did, I see, uh, did I see Drew on the call? Yeah, Drew. Hey, Drew. Drew is, uh, he's in serving in the military. And where is he right now, Becca? Huh? Fort Lee in Virginia. Yeah, so he's, that's, I don't know, I don't know when he realized that was going to be what it was, but I remember him talking about it uh, for a long time. And so, you know, Maybe you have an idea if you're a kid, or maybe you had an idea when you were a kid of what you wanted to be, and, uh, you know, maybe you didn't turn out doing what you thought you would do. But I think most of us, when we hear this question, you know, what is my calling? What is my, 
what am I going to do? What am I going to be when I grow up? We often think first and foremost about a job, don't we? If someone asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hardly anyone says an adult. But my goodness, if we put more emphasis on learning how to be that, then probably a lot of other things would fall better into place. But when we ask about what we want to be, we often think about a job. But you know what? It's not just about a job. A calling is not just about a job. I remember one of my dad's really insightful questions when I told him that I wanted to go to seminary. He said, why do you want to go to seminary? I said, well, to learn to be a pastor. He said, well, what if you never become a full-time paid vocational minister? And without a hesitation, I said, well, I want to go to seminary anyway because for me that feels like life training more than job training. So I knew that was part of that was inside me. I wanted that deeply, even if it had nothing to do with my job. So, you know, when we, when we talk about these things, uh, we first have to kind of say, what, what actually is, oh my goodness, I don't have my, there's no words on that slide. Well, there's words on that slide. Okay. <laughs> what is a calling? What does it mean to have a calling? And here's how I'm going to define calling today. A calling is an all-encompassing mission that leads to restoration and healing for you and for others. It's an all-encompassing mission that leads to restoration and healing for you and for others. There's a couple of different parts there. One, it's all-encompassing. Your calling is not about a job. It's, it includes your job, but it's not about a job. It includes where you're going to live, but it's not about where you're going to live. It includes who you're going to marry, but it's not about who you're going to marry. It includes what school you go to, but it's not about what school you go to. It's about your whole life. Every nook and cranny, crevice, crack, and corner of your life, your calling is about all of it. And it's a mission. It's about purpose. You know, we, sometimes we have dreams for our life. I want to travel the world. I want to see all the sights, or I want to become the best such and such that ever lived, or I just want to live a simple, quiet life with a white picket fence. There we go. You know, you might have dreams, but, but these dreams are not missions. Oh, sure, my mission is to travel the world, but that's, that's not a purpose. That's, that's a desire, and those desires can be good, and they can be part of your calling. There are people who travel the world, and also as they travel, God uses them to do incredible things. But it's about a mission. And then the, th the thing is that it leads to restoration and healing for you and for others. Calling is all about taking something that's broken and making it new again. That's because God's purpose in the world is to take things that are broken and to make them new again. And your calling comes from the Lord. Your calling comes from the Lord. And so this is how we're defining it. So, you know, we all have dreams, but our call is bigger than a dream. Many of us have jobs, but our calling is bigger than a job. Um, we all... You know, are here in this church, but our calling is bigger than just to this church. You know, a lot of people say, I feel called to this church. 
That, that's part of it. That's part of it. But it's more than that. You know, whether it's traveling or maybe, maybe you love math or music or cooking or, you know, maybe you, um, you think, oh, I'd like to pursue these things in life and enjoy them as a career. Or maybe you're retired and you're no longer working. But none of those things change your calling. Retiring does not change or, or end your calling. Having a certain job doesn't, doesn't change your calling. When you switch jobs, it doesn't necessarily change your calling. Uh, although some callings can be for a season. So in the most basic sense, though, we all have the same calling, and that's to follow Jesus. Right, so I mentioned earlier in our service that we all are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're all called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to be a holy priesthood. We're all called to be the body of Christ. You know, these things are common to all of us. And this is why we talk about having our eyes fixed on Jesus, because that is part of our calling, to love Him first and foremost. You know, and... He's the most important person in our lives. He's the most important cause and purpose in our life. So again, whether you're traveling the world or doing the music or cooking or retired, we all have that calling. And so it impacts how we do each of those things that we do. And I love how the Apostle Paul talks about this. So in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, uh, he says this. Let's see. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Paul says, you have a calling, and now live a life worthy of it. And he's talking about our general calling here. And if you, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians 4 real quick. Um, we're going to get to Nehemiah in a few minutes. But in Ephesians 4, we can kind of see a little further what Paul has in mind when he's talking about living a life worthy of your calling. What does it look like? to live a life worthy of your calling. Well, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. In verse 1, in verse 2, he says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what does it look like? Basically, act like Jesus in everything you do. Be a humble business person. Be a gentle nurse. Be a patient retail sales associate. Be a parent who bears with children in love. Keep the unity of the Spirit through peace in whatever church you attend. Remember that all believers are one body and have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, whether they worship here on Sunday morning or somewhere down the street. You know, these are things we can, we can all do. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 7, each one of us, to each one of us, a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then as Paul does so well, he does a little aside, and we're going to skip that and go right to verse 11 where he gets back to finish his thought. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Then we will no longer be infants tossed about, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. <coughs> Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So this is our calling. This is what it means to live a life worthy of our calling. You know, God, God makes some of us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. You know, there's some of those things that some people are called to. But he does it so that the whole church can be built up. The entire body of Christ can do the work of ministry. Right? By the way, ministry just means service. It comes from a word that means service. So he says we're, we're, we're built up to, do, to serve, right? For works of service, equipped for works of service. And here's the cool thing. By doing those works of service, by doing that ministry, we actually become more mature. We actually become more unified. We actually become, uh, we have better understanding of the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. And when he says that we will become mature, we will become complete. And this wonderful phrase, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which is just a powerful little nugget of a phrase there. Attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And I think what Paul's getting at there is this idea that we are really to become just like Jesus. You know, you think about the fullness of Christ, that, that if, he, if kind of like he were in us and he fills up all the spaces, there's none of that old stuff left. He crowds it all out. And we've got the whole measure of it, the whole measure of the fullness. He's emphasizing how much we are indeed to be like Christ. We should live fully as Christ lived, Love fully as Christ loved, serve fully as Christ served. But is that how we live? Is that how we love? Is that how we serve? And I dare say we don't. But that's what we're being called into. That's the invitation. It's not a judgment, church, it's an invitation. Your calling is not something that you get beat over the head with. You're not fulfilling your calling. When God gives issues a call, he's saying, come with me this way. Come do this with me. Right? And, and we always, no matter where you are in life, you have an opportunity to respond with a yes or a no. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've said no before. If the call is still being issued, then you can say yes today. So this is not something where you come in today and you think, oh, I missed it. I've spent my whole life missing my calling. No. This is something where you come in today and say, today, God has an invitation to take one step from where I am now with Him and the direction that He wants me to go. But you need to know what it is. So we all have the same calling, but church, we all also have a different calling. And so we have to ask ourselves, not only 
what is a calling, but then what is my calling? What is it that God wants me to do specifically? I told you when I was a kid, I, I, I knew that God wanted me to be a pastor, but I had the totally wrong idea of what it was going to look like. And, you know, pastors do all sorts of different things. And I'm just using that, you know, I, I'm always cautious because I know that for the most part, most of us in this room are not called to be a pastor. And I don't want to somehow suggest that being a pastor is a, is a godly calling. And then there's kind of like all the stuff you guys do. It's not like that. But I'm just talking from personal experience. This was my calling. But if your calling is something else, that is equally valuable. It's equally meaningful for the kingdom and for the Lord and for you. But this is just kind of the one that I experienced myself. So since pastors can do all sorts of different things, the question is, what does it look like for me to be a pastor? You know, what does it look like for this guy who is a 16-year-old kid in Memphis, Tennessee, going to Central Church and going to the school that I went to and a part of the family that I was in? What does it look like for me to then pursue being a pastor? Because I want to be a pastor, or whatever your calling is, doesn't really help you that much when you wake up on Monday morning and you think, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do this week? What will I do this year to pursue my calling? You know, you've got to get specific. So in addition to this general call, there is a specific call. And one of the things that I'm hoping and praying for you guys, and, and I and Sonia, we've been praying for you, our leadership team is praying for you, that we would be able together to discern what our calling is and what each of our callings are. What are those all-encompassing missions that God wants to bring us into for healing and restoration for ourselves and others? You know, that's the question. Now, we are likely not going to get this solved this week, okay? Do not be afraid or worried or concerned or embarrassed, ashamed. Don't feel any of those negative things if at the end of this week, you don't know what your calling is, okay? That's not the idea. But this week, I would like you to, if you have not, begin exploring and discerning that. Begin a process. Use the study guide to help you. Prayerfully listen to the Lord. Bring your ideas to your small group. Talk to your friends and family. Set up a call with me or Sonia. In fact, uh, we are going to be doing a workshop this summer, or maybe a series of workshops this summer about calling. And do take the work that you start now and bring it then, and we'll continue the process. And besides, what your calling is today, it might shift soon. You never know. Because some, of our, some aspects of our calling are fluid. Sometimes our calling ends and begins anew with something else. That's okay. So we always need to be looking, discerning, listening, praying about what it is that God has for us now and what God has for us next. The other thing I want to say is that don't feel like your calling has to look like someone else's. I already mentioned the thing about a pastor, but you know, sometimes we, in the church we get this idea that, oh, the people who have some upfront ministry, those are the people we look to. And you forget that, you know, none of this would happen if the computer weren't set up and the carpet weren't clean 
and the lights didn't come on because someone took care of the bills and so on and so forth. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, and you can turn there if you want, but a lot of you will be familiar with the passage in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is made up of not one part, but of many. Now the foot should say, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now this next part is really important. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So church, if you feel like your calling is too small, right? You know, we love to say nothing's too big for God, right? And nothing's too small for God. But I think it's more than that. Nothing's too big for God, and the things that we think are small are way bigger than we realize. The things that seem small are indispensable. They're necessary. The kingdom of God needs someone, and I'm, I'm using this as an example, but the kingdom of God needs someone who will set up a computer, who will vacuum a floor, who will pay a bill. Those things are indispensable, and they're necessary, they're vital. The, word, the, the kingdom of God needs people who will stop and enjoy the beauty of a flower, the kingdom of God needs people who will notice that someone is struggling and just lift up a prayer for them. The kingdom of God needs people who, when, when all the busy stuff is happening, they might just be off to the side doing something quiet that no one notices, but it helps get the whole thing done. You know? I, one, one little example is that Sonia and I have been writing these study guides, but... Diane and Kevin have been delivering them to you. A lot of good they'd do if they were sitting in my office, right? So it's all, it's all part of the kingdom. It's all part of the plan. God's using all of it. Those parts of the body, verse 22, that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Do you get where he's going? It's a, it's, a, you know, it's a metaphor here. There are parts of our body that we keep covered, but those are special parts. And there are parts that are up front and out there in the open, and they don't need any special accommodations. You know? And so we honor the things that seem small. We honor the things that don't seem presentable. By the way, church, the body of Christ needs people who are honest about their hurt and their pain because without that, the body of Christ cannot be the body of Christ because we can't do what God's called us to do to bear with one another's 
bear one another's burdens. So the, the body of Christ needs burden bearers, and it needs people who bring those burdens. And I don't think we think about that enough. So, no calling too small, no calling wrong, no calling worse or better than another. God is intentional about calling each of us to different tasks with different gifts. He doesn't want you to do what I do. He doesn't want me to do what you do. And we each will stand before God one day and give an account of what we did with our gifts, with our situation, and with our calling. In the end, we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? So don't look at someone else's calling when you need to be looking at your own. All right, so you notice we haven't even talked about Nehemiah yet, right? So let's fix that. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2, and let's get a glimpse of the moment where Nehemiah actually begins to step into his calling. So last week we looked at Nehemiah 1, and Nehemiah is able to align his heart, his mind, and his will with God. So he kind of says, God, here's where you're at, and I am right there with you. I'm emotionally there with you. I'm mentally there with you. My desires are connected to your desires. And so here he is coming before the king. We know he's the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia. And this is around 444 BC. Again, no quiz, but it just kind of gives you the, the concept. And he says the month of Nisan, which is four months after chapter one. So Nehemiah has been sitting with his sorrow, his desire, his pain, his hopes for four months. Now, I know some of you have been sitting with your desires and pains and hopes for 40 years. Some of you, some of us, I'll put myself in the category, we can be flitting around so often that we have a hard time staying with it for more than four minutes. But however long you sit with that pain and hope and desire, God can use it. And God wants to use it. And so what matters is that we prepare ourselves now to take some action, just like Nehemiah did. So let's see what he did in chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, he's the cupbearer, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So look, Nehemiah comes, he's still sad. So I don't know if he was able to hide his sadness for four months or if he's been, you know, for four months he's been sad and King Artaxerxes is finally like, look, man, what's going on? Like, tell me what's going on. You can't hide it from me. I see. Look, basically you're depressed, okay? Now, some of us are really good at pushing down our emotions. We're really good at compartmentalizing. We can go to work and the people at work would never have any idea of what's going on at home, right? Some of us can do that. Some of us, uh, we can just push the feelings down altogether. We can just stuff them, and we don't even feel them. It's not that we don't show them. It's like we don't feel them anymore. But praise the Lord, Nehemiah either couldn't do that or didn't do that. Because if he had done that, what would have happened? No restoration for Jerusalem. No restoration for Israel. That's the danger that we run into when we push these things down is that the opportunities may not come. It's vitally important that we be able to feel the things that God feels, the pain, sadness, anger, the things that he feels, the desire, the hopes, right? So 
you know, Nehemiah is serving the king. His face displays sadness. The king noticed. Have you ever wondered why does King Artaxerxes care so much about his face? Isn't he just a servant in, in Nehemiah's court? Isn't he just like, you know, I think we get this idea, you know, uh, do you, get, you guys watch Downton Abbey? Do you ever watch that show? And the, the staff come in and they serve them. And I remember there was one episode where there was a, a new server serving in the dining room and there were guests. And, and the thing was, he had to learn that his whole entire job is to go in and serve everyone without anyone noticing he was there. Okay? That's not a cupbearer. He's not just a servant. He's the guy who is the last line of defense for the king's life. He's the guy that if someone tries to poison the king or probably physically even attack the king, he's the last line of defense. This is the guy in the kingdom that Artaxerxes trusts more than anyone else. I mentioned last week that his father and his brother were murdered by the head of the bodyguards. Historically, that's true. So Artaxerxes knows, hey, even my bodyguards may not be trustworthy, but Nehemiah is trustworthy. He's the guy who's always with the king. So he's the one that when, if there's need for advice, a lot of, and it's different in different countries and different times and different kings, but often cupbearers were, were advisors. They were often wealthy. He probably had estates. He probably had staff. He was in charge of things. This is a guy with a really high position in Persia, okay? So Artaxerxes probably has a deep affinity for Nehemiah. He probably cares about him a lot. They're probably the closest thing to friends that they could be given their different station in life. And so when he sees that Nehemiah is sad, he cares. He's... He, he wants to know, what can I do? What can I do to help you? And that's exactly what he says. You know, he says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And it says in verse 2, I was very much afraid. Afraid that he would ask for something and not get what he wanted, maybe. But maybe also afraid that if he asks for something for himself that might be the end of it for him, either the end of his job or the end of his life. And these things happen. You remember when Queen, Queen Esther was so afraid to talk to her husband without him inviting her into the room, afraid that she might kill him if he didn't invite her into the room? You know, this is the dynamic. This is, that's the same time, that's the same kingdom, that's the same culture that Nehemiah is in. The story of Esther is just a few years before the story of Nehemiah. So he says, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven right there in the moment, little popcorn prayer, shooting an arrow up to the heavens. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? You see that? King doesn't bat an eye. What do you need? When will you be back? Take whatever you want. And, and he outlines what he wants. He outlines what he needs. 
And there's an agreement, and Nehemiah is sent to go repair Jerusalem. So this is Nehemiah stepping into his calling. What is it that made it possible? First, he had that passion. He had that desire. He had this understanding of what God's plans for the world were, to restore and rebuild and redeem. He knew these things. So then he sets his foot forward in action towards it, even though he's afraid. But he can overcome that fear because he's been fasting. He's been praying. He's been trusting in the promises of God. And look, there's a little side note here. Not only does he do those things, but he is already someone who is trusted. He's already someone who is proven. Guys, if you want to be able to step fully into your calling, I encourage you, do what you can to become a person who's trusted and to become a person who's proven. And you don't always have to be proven in the thing that you want to do, per se. Nehemiah wants to build walls. I dare say Nehemiah has never built a wall before. But he probably handles his staff well. He probably manages the cupboard well, if you will, which is this massive endeavor for the king of, of Persia. You know, it's not like, not like uh, you know, he's doing inventory at the local McDonald's. You know, he, this is like a big thing, right? He's done it well. And the king, the king doesn't even think twice. Of course I can trust Nehemiah to handle what would be the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars of materials and services and goods off in a distant place where I can't keep an eye on him and where, quite frankly, he's going to be the one in charge of everything because Nehemiah becomes the governor of Judah. So he's trustworthy. Now, God can use you no matter what, okay? But the road seems to be easier when we put ourselves in a position to be trusted and to be proven. So again, maybe, maybe you handle your household well and so then people see that you can handle other things well. Maybe you do your job well, consistently, and so people realize there are other things that you can do well also. Uh, or, and that could be part of like moving up in your career and your job, but it could also be somewhere else. So let's not be too linear about this. Trustworthy is trustworthy. Capable is capable. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter where you are. Those things hold true. So... You know, Nehemiah, he says, this is what I need. This is what I want to do. The king says, go for it. Go for it. And then Nehemiah gives glory to God. Because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. You know, as we, we look at what Nehemiah asked for, we look at how the king responded... There's a couple of really important things that we can notice here, though, that help us in our own calling. Because we all have a calling, right? It's unique and it's specific. So Nehemiah knows where he's called, right? The city, the capital city of Judah. He knows who he's called to. It's this place where the, the remnant of his people are. And he knows what his purpose is. And his purpose is to build a wall. And so, just like Nehemiah, we are all called to a specific people in a specific place with a specific purpose. So if I say I'm called to be a pastor, that's not my calling. That's, that's, this is the big, kind of big picture stuff, but that's not a calling. It's like, no, I'm called to 
New England to Fellowship Bible Church to do a ministry that I feel the Lord has confirmed for Sonia and for me is a ministry of transformation, a ministry of restoration, a ministry of, of raising people up into greater maturity as God is raising me up into greater maturity. Um, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm going to move from Memphis and go, have, go to seminary and then figure something out. Like, no, these are important things, specific things. So, by the way, when I moved here, I had no passion for New England. I told Sonia, we'll live here five years and then we're out of here. I'm giving you five years. Year four, year four, we came to this church and everything changed. It just changed. You know, I, I can say I have a passion for New England, you know, and I serve that passion for New England right here in and through Fellowship Bible Church. And I'm doing it with Sonia and I'm doing it with you, right? And... I'm not a youth pastor. I'm preaching and doing other things and seeing people's lives healed, transformed, restored, walking into greater maturity. And I believe that in the future, God wants to use us to minister to other leaders. Sonia and I feel that call at some point in the future. We don't know when that will be, what it will look like, but we think that's a part of it. So although the specifics are not clear, for the future, for the present, it's clear. It's this place. It's doing these things. And if I were to ask you to articulate what you're called to, to whom are you called, for what purpose are you called, where are you called, would you be able to do it? And if not, that's okay, because that's what we're doing. That's what we're moving into. Uh, But we have to start. We have to start asking those questions, asking the Lord those questions, listening, getting feedback from other people. Look, calling is never just a personal thing. I remember when I was, again, learning about being a pastor, they, you know, wise people said to me, hey, just because you feel called doesn't mean you're called. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, if no church lets you pastor them, then you will not be a pastor. Right? I mean, you guys were gullible enough. <laughs> you guys took a risk. You took a chance on a 29-year-old kid. You said, all right, let's do this together. But... If no one else sees it in you, then that's a problem. But so ask, what do you see in me? Ask your friends, your family, your small group. What do you see in me? What do you think about my calling? And look, honestly, I have way more that we're not going to get to. Way more. Because it's just such a huge topic. So I'm going to kind of skip ahead a little bit. Um, One thing that I want to propose is that... um, this resource, To Be Told, by Dan Allender. This is a great book. Sonia has been recommending this book to everyone that she sees. Um, and it's, it's about what your calling is, how to trace the story of your life from where you've gone to see where you're going. And the, some of the elements from this book we put into our study guide that you're going to look at this week. Uh, but it's not all there. There's so much more. And again, just kind of thinking of the lack of time uh, we do have to move on. Um, and so I just want to make that of it, you know, make that f- out there for you. Um, but then, 
I guess let me do this real quickly. I'm going to hit on four points. They're in your study guide, but four points on how do you understand what your purpose is. And your purpose is where, your purpose is where these four things meet, okay, where they converge. And so in your study guide, you're going to see an image of four circles. One circle says your pain. One circle says your passion. One circle says your proficiencies. And the last circle says a great need. And I would love to spend more time on this, but it's basically this. Where the things that you desperately care about, the word passion comes from the word for suffer. And the reason we use it the way we do today is the idea is, I want this so much it hurts. And so I encourage you, write down a list. What are the things that you long for so much that they hurt? When you read Romans 12 and it talks about how we groan awaiting our redemption what are the things you groan for and it could be some ugly thing that you want to rid the world of or it could be some beautiful thing that you want to see all over the world it could be some fear that you that you want to escape from or it could be some delight that you want to move towards but what do you want so bad that it hurts that's one of your circles then just the way God is, God loves to use our own pain to bring healing to it and then to bring healing to others in the same area. It's no mystery why people who were alcoholics then work with people who struggle with alcoholism. It's no mystery why someone who and it grows up in the inner city on the streets in a rough way, often grows up and wants to work with teens in the inner city who are living on the, you know, out on the streets. Now, not always, but often, often. So what is the pain in your life that you've had to face? And how might God want to use that pain to help others? Now, here's the thing about that. A lot of us, we don't want to look at our pain anymore. We're done with our pain. We want to leave it behind. But through Christ, you can be healed of that pain so that it doesn't push you away anymore. You don't have to run from it anymore. You can face it in Christ. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We can face our pain when Christ is holding our hand. And we can be healed in that pain. And when we find healing, then we'll know how to bring healing to others in the same area. And it's beautiful when it happens. So that's your second circle, your passion, your pain, then your proficiency. And your proficiency is basically what are you good at? And I don't know, I don't care how small or insignificant you think it is, or if you're a little more full of yourself, how big or great you think it is. God was to use all of it. It includes your skills, your gifts, your talents. It also includes the resources you have. It also includes the relationships and networks you have. There might be other people who have resources that you can access because of your relationship with them. You know, it's all these things. Everything that potentially you have at your disposal, God wants to use. And you take those three and you connect it to a great need in the world, and man, have you got uh, a powerful and potent mix of factors for your calling. Now, these are just tools to help you. Sometimes you don't need to go through that process. Sometimes you do. Uh, but they help you to discern what it is God's doing. And again, I just, I'm feeling really sad about how 
um, how little time we have today. But uh, I just want to close with this, if I can get it up there. Oh, there we go. Oh, no, that's not it. It's the one after that. Are you serious again? I am not happy with this. There we go. Church, when, when you can let your passion, your pain, your proficiency, and a great need steer you to a people, a place, and a purpose, that's your calling. When those, when those four areas that we just talked about point you towards a people, a place, and a purpose, that's your calling. And this is super simplified. And it's way too rushed. But in some ways, it's not more complicated than that. Lord, where do you want me? Who do you want me with? And what do you want me to be doing? And really, in some ways, that's not so hard, is it? I mean, it can be hard. But in some ways, it's not. It's actually pretty simple. Where do you want me? Who do you want me with? And what do you want me to be doing? We're going to continue talking about where God wants us, who God wants us with, and what God wants us to be doing. And then we're going to help you, if you haven't already, to discern specifically for you as an individual those same answers to those same questions. So church, I want to pray for you. Um, and my prayer is not just going to be that you discern your calling. Okay? Because there's also this real value in the wrestling and the process. And God wants to work through that too. So Lord, help us today not only to know what it is that you called us to do, not only to know where you want us, with whom you want us, and what you want us to be doing, but Lord, also, I pray that you walk with us in the process so that we learn more about ourselves and more importantly, that we learn more about you. Lord, that as we learn more about you, in turn, we would learn even more about ourselves because who you are informs who we are. God, that as we think about our calling, that it would always be born out of who we are in Christ, out of our identity. God, that this would not feel like a burden, one more thing we have to do, but it would feel like a freeing invitation to, to be what we always wanted to be and to be who we always wanted to be, doing it with you. So, Lord, there's a lot of great needs out there. There's a lot of burdensome needs out there. There's a lot of overwhelming needs out there. So God, help us to know what is the one piece that you want us to do? The one place with the one people with the one purpose so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed but could joyfully step into that purpose and calling for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.